mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diana. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I feel like my reality is a labyrinth and I am caught up in this dream. But not David Bowie, the labyrinth. Not Dave. I knew, I was actually, that was my line. <laughs> we don't even confer before these recordings. You How never confer. You and I are so like the same era. Yeah, David Bowie's labyrinth right, actually yeah. had a massive impact on my life. Mm. There was some scene where there was like a, I can't remember her name. Was it Julia Gartner? No, not Jennifer Julia Connelly. Gartner. Jennifer Connolly. Yeah. I think she had like a lipstick, like a lip salve or something in it. And you wanted and it. I wanted it so badly. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the film, I was like, Mum, I want... I, I need some lipstick. I need a red lipstick. I need your lipstick. Or whatever <laughs> colour it was. But that was actually about um, possessions <laughs> being charged and having like talisman. Mm. There was something about the lipstick that I think gave the cat... I can't actually remember, but there was something about it. Mm. That it wasn't about it being lipstick, And even though I loved dressing up when I was a kid. But it was more about the energy force of an object. Well, what you bestow onto it. Yeah, 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 and kind of like supernatural or... Yeah, because there's that sci-fi. bit with that old lady with a bag on her back and she goes, you want your dolly? Here's your dolly. <laughs> and then it's terrifying and all the stuff that she like cares for, suddenly she's like terrifying. It's like a horror movie. So today's guest, bringing it back to... I mean, David Bowie was art, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, bringing it back to art. I have come in on the train today and I was just thinking like, it's almost like the artwork's begun already because today's oh. guests work every time I've seen it. I feel like I'm kind of in a reality, you know, but it's not the, it's not mm. reality. And you're obviously totally aware it's not reality because you're in an art gallery like the times I'd seen at Matt's gallery or at Tate or even abroad, I think at Venice and and different places where I've, where I've seen his work. But um, I remember one time I was in the Tate and I just got trapped in the work and I couldn't work out which door it was to get yeah, out I did of. the same. And it was so embarrassing, but at the same, and it was almost like panic attacky. Mm. I think I was a bit stressed at the time, but at the same time, it was like really humorous. And I love that idea that that it, it's sort of like super serious. There's this political kind of undertone. Undertone is that the right word? Well, anyway, there's a political kind of charge throughout the mm. work, even in the titling of the work. This current show at the Hayward Gallery, which is where we're sat right now, is called Extinction Beckons, mm-hmm. which is a very poetic. It sounds like a kind of book title. Uh, so there is this kind of like element of politics of maybe like entropy, maybe like end of the world. But there's also this humour and a kind of like joy in objects that have maybe lost their purpose or or have, have like moved in time. Mm. And there's also this kind of like idea of liminality and like being in a dream state uh, in between something and maybe the end of an era going into a new era. Yeah, political. It feels like a political era when you change sort of governments, for example, there's been some sort of 
democracy breakdown and this is the remnants that have left, been left behind. And also deeply personal. And I think often that's not mentioned in regards to our guest today. And that's actually something for me that I will really want to discuss today. So we are at the Hayward. This is an epic show. And I use the word epic because it's re re kind of configuring, reconstructing um, works from the past. So it's a huge retrospective. But this isn't a normal retrospective where you have paintings in crates and then you like ship them around the world and get them here. This is like hundreds and hundreds of tiny objects, which and giant objects, which have had to be sort of stored away all over in different places across Europe, across the UK, and then brought back together and then re- built like a kind of film set or something you know it's like it's feel filming it's that kind of yeah. detail though there's so many objects in this this show and i really recommend everyone coming down to the hayward and buying a ticket and seeing this or membership or whatever but you have to see this because this art is for the people it's it's for all of us and it's probably the most public artwork in a weird way of, of the whole time we've done talk art because i just think it's so inclusive and let's get to our guest yeah yeah, yeah. anyway <laughs> we would like to welcome to talk art the one and only Mike Nelson. Nelson. <laughs> nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too, Mike Nelson, RA. Yes, I have that at the end of my name. When did that when did that occur? Maybe um I don't know, about eight years ago maybe. I can't remember actually, sort of it was kind of uh yeah. Quite a strange sort of thing to have to decide on, in a way, which was was a nice thing to be asked. But is it a decision that, though? It is a decision, yeah. Some people don't uh go with it and some people do. So, you know, I've got friends that Perhaps might have been, but said no. So it's uh, it's not for everybody. I mean, certainly the RA's reputation, perhaps in the mid-20th century, wasn't something most people want to be associated with. But sure. um, And obviously mid-century before one would sort of. Uh, but I think of recent times, it's really you know, changed its kind of image and it's uh, the kind of people that are actually within the RA, which kind of makes it far more appealing. And also the schools. I mean, it's probably the best school uh, in London now, sort of a, a lot of the reason why is because it's actually paid for. So there's not many places you can go to and study for, for free and actually have a bursary, which was the norm in my day. But I mean, Where did you study? I was at Reading University um, and then Chelsea School of Art because same with Rebecca sort of uh, years ago. But uh, Are they, that, Mike's good friends with Rebecca Warren. Well, actually... The other thing I wanted to say about you is that you're an artist artist and you really are. I mean, every single artist I've mentioned I'm doing this interview, including Rebecca Warren, and Rebecca actually said how thrilled she was that you'd been given this opportunity of this show mm. because she feels like often the kind of work you're making might not get the opportunity to have kind of large scale, you know, yeah. platforms. And it's great that you do. Yeah, I think um, I think it's quite hard for an institution to convince their board that they're going to get the numbers through the doors on the reputation of my name alone because I'm not even though I've done big shows in big places like the Pavilion and Turner Prize and stuff, I'm probably not such a household name. And a lot of the reason is because the work, you know, only manifests for that one period of time. So I can't tour it around the world. So you can't make one work and then tour it uh, like, you know, say a sculpture, a painting or even a video installation, you know, because they've got to be rebuilt each time. So if you miss it, you miss it. Um, why, why do you set that rule for yourself? Because they're longer to put up than they're actually exhibited most of the time. <laughs> yes. Why, why have you given yourself that rule that once it's... It's like a happening, I guess. It feels like if you were there, you had to be in the room where it happened. Yeah. And then once it's gone, it's gone. Well, I think years ago, I think I was quite... Back in the 90s, probably, I was kind of interested in the idea of not being consumed, I suppose. I suppose that idea of freedom and that kind of consumption by um, other structures. And I suppose at the time, the market was one structure you could be consumed by. And advertising was another, I suppose, uh, that I saw artworks 
being subsumed into somehow and marketing structures. And I suppose making work in such a way that I did, it somehow did sidestep that. It, and to, to a certain point, I, I do feel slightly that my criti- crit- critique of my own self in the pavilion in Venice, which is a work I absolutely love, but I did feel somewhat like I'd made this huge kind of flagship sort of um, piece of advertising for a huge kind of structure, which is a very commercially based sort of structure ultimately. And, and so in many ways, since that point, I haven't built many of the multi-room pieces because it's somehow this kind of idea of these immersive environments, you know, whether it be sort of like in theatre or in sort of uh, restaurants or whatever, felt somewhat like they'd somehow commodified that idea and I was, it, it kind of didn't really quite ring. So more recently, I mean, that's with the asset strippers and the more kind of uh, sculptural shows I've been doing since. It's That's partly the reason for that. But uh, back in the 90s, that's why I was kind of somehow trying to avoid that. I mean, but also I enjoy making them. So I suppose it was just, it was, I think sometimes artists, especially perhaps these days, kind of slightly get it wrong in that, they want to make something that somehow makes them successful or, you know, whether that be commercially or sort of like whatever, when really you just want to just do what you fancy and what you enjoy. And then, you know, hopefully it just comes to you, you know, whatever you need, sort of a ultimate. You know, I've, I've been lucky in that, even though perhaps I haven't been the most uh, financially successful in the art world, I have managed to have a career making what I like that's been paid for by other people. I mean, you know, in another life I might have been a builder, but people be telling me what to build, whereas now... I can build what I fancy. If you think back to that time, to the kind of late 80s, early 90s, when you started to really break through, there wasn't really many other people at all doing the kind of installations that you were creating, if you want to call them installations, because there's it's kind of, a, I'd be interested actually to see how you would describe them yourself. But but what was it like to take on that kind of challenge or did you just not, you just did it because you wanted to do it? I think going back to Reading, I was quite a product of Reading. You know, in the Red, a lot of the tutors teaching there, um, you know, Richard Wilson, Ron Hazelden, Bill Colbert, Mark Camille Shemovitz kind of uh, um, were all kind of expansive sort of whatever you'd call kind of uh, installation makers, films, sort of videos, sort of uh, sound. And I'm very much a product of that kind of era, an epoch, the kind of the, all those artists that squatted the sort of wharfs down in the East End sort of like back in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s. So I must give some credit to them when I fell into it and just felt you know, like a pig in muck really that was kind of that was me I was kind of happy building big things and sort of enjoying myself and was you a builder anywhere or did you build things growing up as a kid was you someone oh, yeah. that had no my dad well my dad was a mechanic on the big knitting machines in the factories in the Midlands and then he sort of like worked his way up into running the factories and uh, managing them which he hated but he loved you know but really it was it was more much more of a mechanical like engineering mind on him um, and he was always making things for us back at home. And he used to bring back the big uh, resin drums full of uh, these spools and the odds and sods from the uh, huge, you know, these are huge knitting machines, lent to this room, sort of uh, uh, from the factories, and uh, put it in the corner and I'd make things out of that. Would you? Of, uh, so I'm, not, I'm actually doing the same thing I was doing then, really, sort of uh, just collecting larger amounts of stuff. But, did he see the work? Has he seen the work in his life? He's dead now, unfortunately. But he did died. he see the work when you. Yeah, yeah, he used to help me. Like, um, did he? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, every now and again, like um, he did all the locks on the ICA show. I remember the, the door handles and stuff. <gasps> and, and I remember him doing the Turner Prize in 2001. And uh, he came along and said, uh, Oh, I've just been chatting to a nice chap. I think he was a security guard or something. And I, I'd, I'd spotted him earlier on, but it was it was Nick Sorota, which uh, Nick <coughs> speaks well of both of them because you know, both were kind of happy to 
to talk on a, a level that kind of, uh, you know, didn't really mind who they were, sort of like just having a nice chat while my dad was fixing a lock on the on the, on the front door wow. of the, uh, the first Turner Prize piece. So, and this yeah. is Nick Sorosa used to run the Tate. Yes. So yeah. your dad was having a chit-chat with. Yes, but he didn't know who he was. Like, dad wouldn't really know who. <laughs> well, this building thing is great because there's a quote here where you said, half the time I spend it, this is being an artist, half the time I spend it as a builder, I look like a builder, I behave like a builder to some degree, but ultimately my head doesn't know that. My head is somewhere else. Yes, well, that's uh, it. Always amuses me slightly because I mean, you know, all my mum, all my dad's family, you know, came from the, the textiles factories. My grandfather, my mum, my godmother, my dad, my aunt and uncle, they're all in the factories in, in this small rural village in the Midlands called Shepshed, or Sheep's Head, which is where they would have brought the the head of sheep to sort of be shorn to kind of make the textiles. And then my mum's family were painters and decorators and plumbers, and then before that miners in a place called Colville. So it is like something out of some sort of Dickensian sort of uh, English story, isn't it, in many ways? Kind of, uh, and in between that was a redundant vol- uh, forest on, on an old volcano. You can't imagine such a thing. It sounds quite romantic, but it's uh, probably not if you go back there now, but still. Um, it was... feels like literature, like you're talking about Dickensian. Yes. <laughs> your, your worlds feel like you're... And I know you're a big reader and, and literature yeah. does well, channel into... It kind of wasn't, wasn't. I mean, I kind of went to reading, I remember, on a French exchange years ago because I was so homesick and it kind of, like, taught me to read. And I've had periods and I've read a lot. And, again, through my 20s, I read a hell of a lot, sort of, uh, you know, and I still read now, but not as much as I should. I'm a slow reader. I mean, I, they kept me down at school when I was a child because I was a slow reader, sort of. Uh, so I did, you know, I was the oldest in the year, you know, August an August birth, but uh, which was a godsend for me ultimately. So, but um, and then when I left college, I became a builder. Oh, you I, actually did. So you did I, train. I did a couple. A well, train. I mean, I, I followed a, followed a builder around, sort right, of like right. being told to mix up buckets of muck and chuck it in holes. You know, <laughs> which is what I've been doing since. Really. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, so um, it was kind of, and in fact, sort of like you know, one of those tutors, Richard Wilson built his house with him we ripped it all out and then the builder came and I worked with the builder then and then I went on working with the builder for another year or two but yeah so he was one of my tutors he's a lovely man again he sort of like I think when he took me on as a builder you know he was pretty at this you know prominent sort of like in in British sculpture and uh he'd just chat away to me and sort of like uh you know work side by side like like a couple of builders eating cheese cobs of a of a uh... <laughs> sounds like heaven yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> it was nice it was really nice sort of, uh, but Easy yeah. life. I remember pulling up a, a big marble fireplace and dropping it on my toe. I was balancing on all the open joists that went all the way down no, to the no, bottom, no, no. bottom floor. Bloody hell, that hurt, sort of like. Ooh. But, um, yeah, so, anyway. Uh, what Can you tell us about Matt's gallery? Because Matt's gallery, to me, is such a radical, vital, important space, yeah. and it's really singular in what its kind of mission has been over the years. And how, how did you come to sort of collaborate with them? Yeah, well, so I think singular is the right term, and singular is Robin Klasny in the end, sort of uh, right. who, who runs kind of Matt's gallery. You know, it is a, it is an art, it is like an artist collective, but it's very much run by by the maverick man himself, Robin, <laughs> sort of like uh, who was my external, you know. We said earlier, my external assessor at Reading was Felida, which is you know, obviously a sad and shocking time that she's just died. And my external at uh, Chelsea was Robin Klasnick. So he was interested in the work, and it's it's kind of a courtship with Robin. Well, it was then anyway, sort of like uh, you know, you kind of he shows interest. He said, you know, if you make something, you know, come and show me. Sort of like uh, you know, we'll have a chat. So every time I'd made an, another show in some strange space somewhere in. 
normally in Britain, but um, I'd go along with the slides and you know, transparencies. We'd get them on the light box and, and we'd have a chat about them and then there'd be a sort of lingering conversation on the doorstop, you know, on the way out, sort of like, you know, with a few sort of come hither eyes, but sort of like, a, you know, until the moment when he said yes, you know, he asked, he asked me out for a show, as it were, sort of a, kind of nice, you know. It was, you know, it was, it took a few years. And um, he was very sort of, he's very generous, you know, when it comes to the work, you know. It's, he really invests in it, sort of like, a, you know, about thinking about it, about looking at it. Even though sometimes you realise in time that he doesn't really understand all the reference points, perhaps I'm, you're coming out with it, mm. but more like in a felt way, an empathetic way, he kind of understands the work. And he's very sort of like, um, you know, he's very sort of sensitive in that respect. So, yeah, in 96, I think, or 95, was it? I did the first show there, I think, 96, January, trading station, Alpha CMA, which was a sort of a huge warehouse of shelving, sort of, uh, which, when you walked in, it was almost like a kind of repository of all the sort of, like, detritus of the East End, which was, you know, there was a lot of it in those days. Kind of, uh, there were sort of redundant sort of, like, yards and, you know, spaces that don't exist anymore, mm. which are full of old car parts, doors, tyres, whatever, sort of... Uh, and I just collected it all up in my old pickup truck and sort of like drive it back, built a load of shelving, sort of so like a warehouse. And when you walked into it, it was just that. You know, it was formally inviting and interesting, sort of like a, I think somebody described it like a sculptor's uh, repository. But when you got to the centre, there was a sort of a hut built into the, into the centre of it. You could go in? Yeah, well, you could stand up on a crate and put your head inside. And it was only the height of, you know, you could only stand on all fours, sit uh, inside. Yeah, yeah. And strewn around on the floor was a load of old chewed bones, uh, a blanket and a dog bowl. But there's also a television and a book called Hard to Be a God, which is upside down, so it read as, as dog. And it was a sort of reference points to sort of a, to a book by Arcadian Boris Strugatsky, who, who also wrote a book called uh, Roadside Picnic, which became Stalker by Tarkovsky. And it was a reference to that. It was also a reference to Heart of Darkness, because... Uh, there's a moment where sort of, I uh, don't know if you ever remember, sort of uh, Apocalypse Now, Easy Ride, Dennis Hopper's character in Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. There's a moment where he says, isn't it kind of weird? When is this manic, mad sort of like a uh, uh, photographer in Kurtz's sort of like lair, says, isn't it weird how God is dog backwards? And so there's this reference then that takes you through to Heart of Darkness and it's kind of literary equivalent, uh, it's filmic equivalent to uh, Apocalypse Now. So this sort of like uh, Soviet and American whatever so then you have to re- reread the show backwards from the inside out again, sort of uh, having seen it as a formal mass. Yeah, yeah. Then it becomes this narrative thing from the centre out. So that was the first show. And in a way, the first space uh, downstairs is, is built in reference to that. And in, in a way, what I've tried to do with the, the work here, because you know, they said oh, a, you know, a retrospective, I thought, well, I don't think they're quite ready for a retrospective. Yeah. Sounds like I'm dead. Mid-career, uh, mid-career survey. I thought survey was a better word, but also sort of like, but how do I, you know, how do I actually sort of do that with these types of work? So in a way, I've reworked uh, different works to somehow uh, annex in other works right. in my own mind, whether right. you can actually spot them or not, so it doesn't matter. But sort of, uh, so in some ways, Trading Station is present in, this, in the first work downstairs. So. Mm. You said earlier on that there was a, a sensitivity towards your work. Do you feel vulnerable with your work or, or are you quite ballsy with it? Once it's out there, you're like, make uh, of it what you will. Certainly, yeah. yeah. I'm vulnerable with it. Not so much, um, not so much critically. More it in itself. You know, uh, certainly I've had to spend a bit of time uh, repairing 
and fixing down things that got broken or taken. Taken? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, which has happened before. And that does affect me, I must admit, because it does seem, you know, having found this stuff and installed it for 20-odd years, it's kind of a bit like... And, of course, it's, it somehow misses the point because once you take it out of the space, it becomes just a thing. You know, it has no longer has no resonance because it's not part of that whole in a way so it sort of somehow misses even if it's a gesture of you know great love it's a it's a misguided one shall we say mm. um so i do feel a vulnerability in terms of that i don't think i'm that kind of ballsy about it <laughs> especially when it's up it's up when i'm building it um i'm also quite you know but I, there's a certain focus though when you're building it you know there is no sort of like turning back and there is no sort of uh you know, you just have to focus and make it so. But is there a level of improv in, in your work? Do you have a... Because there's such sprawling oh, of course, kind yeah. of disorientating yeah. environments. Do you set out in your mind's eye, you can picture it completely or are you sort of building it as you go along? Often I, I find that I can picture it quite well. Wow. Um, but having said that, there's definitely improvisation. I think that's actually very important. I think, um, you know, when I was at art school back in the 80s, especially when it was particularly sort of like... Uh, theoretical sort of like you know you were being forced to read your, all these or at least sort of like uh, coerced into reading all these sort of like a uh, heavy duty sort of uh, critical theory. theory and stuff yeah. right. some of it very interesting and some of it utterly in one ear and out the other mm. sort of uh, um, I think when I left I think that was the thing when literature came in because the stuff I had read and had actually stayed with me from theory I started to find far more sort of um, you know shall we say, sort of soluble in, the, in, in, in literature mm. and, and far more enjoyable. And also it, sort of t- it taught you that a lot of younger artists were using theory to somehow make art, but it just became an illustration of theory. And ultimately what you really want to make is what uh, the theoreticians look at and make their theories from. And to do that, you've got to have some... Like what, for example, what would that be? What, a theory? A th- what would a theoretician look at and make a theory from? Well, kind of, you know, there's so many theoreticians would write in reference to, say, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Yeah. Just because it's just so sort of, like, incredible. Yeah. It, you know, it's a story, but ultimately what it talks about in terms of philosophy and in terms of sort of, like, um, psychology, history, in terms of, yeah, psychology, everything. Yeah. Sort of, like, it's a neuroscience, everything. It, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's all in there, sort of, ultimately. And, yeah, that's just a story. And it's a story that can be boiled down even to a children's story, sort of, in many yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. But it's all there, sort of, a... And I think, so to be able to make something like that, that can actually sort of inform, you know, the big brains that write this stuff, then that is the more kind of suitable position to be in. Well, also, I'm no theoretician, so, you know, it's like a, I'm not really claiming to be. And so, but to, to be able to make something that can... It's multi-layered, multi-nuanced, and you can read into your work yes. on so many yeah. levels. It is very psychological. Yeah. It's very disorientating. It's also playing with this permission to trespass. Yes. You know, we see these buildings, you think, do I go in? Is it dangerous to go in? Am I allowed to go in? There's a fascination, but there's a fear. And you tap into that, which is a very kind of zeitgeisty society feeling that we all sort of have. We have like a voyeuristic approach to the world now is that we all want to know what everybody's doing at every point, the big brother feeling. Yes. But these, these places you create are devoid of people yes as as an actor by trade me i would love to get involved in these spaces and do a play <laughs> but the fact is is that you don't we see the remnants of humanity we see where they've been like you're saying the chewed bones the dog bowl the dog would have been there 
people would have been there, but they fled. It's the Mary Celeste, yes. you know, what's left behind. And we're allowed to suddenly trespass into what felt like it was incredibly inhabited and a hive of activity. Yeah. The, the idea from the early 90s when I shifted into this from the work I was making perhaps at college was this idea of a hybrid script where I'd take a reference uh, to the site I was making in a, a reference to a political situation going on at the time and a reference to a, a fictional, a, a literary or a filmic sort of other, and then mix it all up and then sort of make this object, which is like a, res- like a residue that would be a catalyst for the viewer, whoever yeah. it might be, so whether it be the great big the- the theorist or whether it's you know, the milkman or whatever, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, to come along with their own histories and then with their own histories to add to that script. Yes. And I think that's probably what has been the most successful in that, um, you know, I got sent a lovely email by uh, a Turkish architectural model maker, I think, a filmmaker, the other day, which I, I need to reply to, but it was the most fantastic. And it was full of theory in the, in the answer, which is very interesting theory, but it was also very sort of felt and sort of like, you know, um, human response. And I think the, the last line was something like, you know, thank you for making this exhibition just for me. And even though they, they knew that I hadn't made it just for them, yeah. understood the sort of like the complexity of the fact that I'd just made it for a lot of people, you know, not just them. But yeah. for them, they understood that this was, it felt so personal to them. And, uh, and that's, wow, an that's incredibly, incredibly touching. Thing. Yeah, well, you really said touching, yeah. Making sense of the world through our own histories. Yeah. So we, we make a sense of the world that you present to us through our own history, through our own projections. Yes. And it's like choose your own adventure in these spaces. It is, yeah. And it's not, triggering. Yeah. It's hard. They're hard. You know, certain objects can just bring so much up for so many people, but in, on different levels, kind of a, you know, and it's a, and I think when you talk about ad-libbing or kind of like... Um, Improving. Imp- yeah, it's, it, I think that's where the sensibility that kind of comes in. I suppose these scripts or structures were almost like arenas in which I could play because I, I, they'd become like a kind of a narrative or a, a structure which would have uh, given it like an arena almost, which were kind of pushing a certain idea or a certain understanding of uh, an artwork you towards it, but mm. not actually saying what you have to think about it. But within that, you could actually sort of, um, I could get to play, which is what I want to do because I, that's the enjoyable bit in terms of making art. But it also sort of like is the enjoyable bit for the, the the visitor to look at and to you know to make sense of. It's like the language, isn't it? It's like prose. And as you get older, it you realise it's um, you know, the formality is the prose. And like you can actually write about the most banal thing, and if the language is beautiful, you'll still want to read it. So it's intergenerational though, because it feels like a computer game as well at points. Yes. Like you know these kind of dark ones where you're kind of hiding. And... PlayStation asked me to do a project. Many Did years they ago, really? Years ago, back in the early two thousands. <clears throat> but it was more just with advertise to do with advertising. It was, and it was nice they picked up on it. I thought, but actually I was slightly disappointed because I thought they might actually make you know the coral reef into a game, which I thought that would be quite interesting. Amazing. But they didn't. Oh. Like no, still just... could after listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they just wanted to make something that's an advertising sort of thing, but it, right, it, right. it never worked out. You know, it was, right, right, right. it was too expensive and too much effort. You know, the one thing I really think about your work is that that, that person who mentioned that, thank you for making it for me, yeah. art, every single person that sees it, sees it differently. There is no 
like yes. you know mm. actual version of anything it's kind of like so open but i think your art really highlights that because if you like today we're going in just with you there's three of us going to walk around the exhibition but we're going to have a very different experience to if there's like 50 60 people in the room with you walking around it and i i noticed in a lot of the reviews and criticism around the show and also people i've known that have visited it they all have picked up on this thing of going through it with other people and there being some kind of like psychic connection between each other and how emotional it felt felt at certain points throughout the show because they were with other people almost like journeying through mm. yeah. and I found that so fascinating this idea of kind of like subconscious they're not even talking to each other but there's some sort of empathy some sort of deep soul safety it's like are you, are you here are you looking after me have you got my back because they feel disorientating and at times they feel quite violent mm. I felt in them spaces yeah, threatening like the identities yes but um, I suppose it's but you know ultimately that it's you know, in an you art gallery, yeah, like yeah. a construct, yeah, you do, yeah. but you, you, you get you trick yourself. I mean, I do as an actor, I allow myself to kind of go with them emotions of yes. being immersed in this sort of adventure, do you know what I mean? Escaping from someone or in hiding or yes. trying to be as quiet. I imagine a lot of people are quiet and they don't get a lot of noise. I don't know, I don't, I tend not to go in when it's open again. That's, that's interesting. That's, what, what is that? that? Well, probably back to the vulnerability, thing. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I like it when I'm, I like to build it, I like that being in there with the people I build it with. But when it's open to the public, it's somehow, yeah, I'll just be sort of too busy looking at what they're doing. Like, you know, right. don't, no. Don't steal that. <laughs> exactly. Put that down. Yeah, yeah. Stop stealing so everything. I'm better yeah. off not in there, sort of like, uh, but it was different with the asset strippers. I could walk around there and that was quite nice in the Devine. This was in 2019 at the Tate, Britain, yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. What was that exhibition then? Uh, that was a sort of... Uh, a huge exhibition of monumental sculptures made out of the kind of remnants of um, British industry. I mean, generally, you know, they'd, Clary had asked me, Clary Wallace, the, the, the Tate, to do a, a work for the uh, uh, for the Devine Galleries, which was really constructed in 1937 by Lord, with the money from Lord Devine, who sold art to industrialists. Um, and it was quite a, I mean, I think it's quite a fascistic sort of like hallway. I mean, it, mm. it has the sort of aesthetics of the 1930s somehow, kind of, a, you know, within it. But it also reminds me of sort of like the cast room and the V&A and also the... Um, I love the cast room, I do. yeah. Cast court. They used to go with us on the dole in the 90s. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. There in the lower rooms of the British Museum. And so you think, what's in there? You know, these monumental sculptures, many of which we, you know, acquiesced sort of like a... Through sort of our empirical, imperial mm. kind of history, sort of uh, most of that paid for by industry. So, you know, what are we in now? We're in the end of this epoch that has made us, made us this rich, powerful sort of like empire. Empire, yeah. um, Rule Britannia. Exactly. So yeah. I thought, well, maybe I should make a monumental sculpture from um, the last remnants of industry. And where would you get that from, of course, from the epoch that somehow superseded it sort of from the internet um because that's where you can get anything from these days mm. and all these liquidation sales uh on the internet of of companies going under sort of disappearing becoming sort of like uh, obsolete um so that's where i got it from just this is on. asset stripping i guess that's exactly. where it came from it stripping. makes me think of pretty woman do you remember at the end of pretty woman where richard gear goes in and they're going to asset strip all the companies down and then they end up building the company yeah Anyway, that's a... yeah, no, that... <laughs> I don't know if anyone's been talked about Pretty Woman in your work before. It, it was glamorous in those days, sort of oh, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but now it's a bit bleaker, a bit more you know, close to the bone, as it were. So then I bought all this machinery and material, some from um, public institutions like the NHS, 
uh, things from sort of agriculture, things from sort of like you know, woodworking shops, metalworking shops. In fact, one of a great big electrical engineering factory in my hometown, Loughborough, sort of like where my cousin used to work. I bought a load of stuff from the brush from there, which was quite nice because it was quite personal. But also the stuff they made, because they made in-house these incredible steel. You'll see them upstairs, steel sort of like uh, uh, trestles and stuff. And then constructed these kind of monumental sculpture that somehow would, would, I suppose, rift or sort of like were refer referential to sort of post-war British sculpture, like the Henry Moores, the Lynn Chadwick's, kind of uh, and the Epstein's. I suppose it talked about the fact as well that those machines made that type of work possible as well. And that type of work somehow influenced the design of those machines and vice versa. So it's this cyclical sort of thing where sort mm. of like design influenced art, influenced you know, design sort of, uh, but also facilitated the making of it. And so in all these galleries on either side, you have these sculptures that look quite similar, but to these machines kind of just really, it was just, it, most of it was just stacked on a cast big concrete um, stands for them and then just stack them up sort of spreading the weight balancing sort of uh and i think there's probably about 40 wow. in the whole space uh the ready-made the ready-made is important to champion in yeah they're, they're, they're slightly more than ready-made because they're collaged you know because oh. there's more than one object normally sort of like it might be like a steel table with a with a welder on it or it might be a um there was one which we had three great telegraph poles with a concrete ring sort of like a ratchet strapped on top of you know, a couple of trestles and on top of a load of lorry tarpaulins kind of um, from, um, yeah, from Hull, sort of like with all the sort of, you know, the, the painting and the, the phone numbers and whatever. Yeah, incredibly, and it was quite emotional. And then even we, we boarded off all the walls there and to the two corridors to sort of break up the space further on at the back. And um, all the timber for that came from a, an, old, uh, an old barracks in Shrewsbury, in Shropshire, where they sort of like had... Strip the kind of like a, um, you know, the armed forces, as it were, this sort of 19th century barracks, beautiful timber. It's quite interesting, though. It is. Those it was like a feeding system. Oh. Yeah. But is your work like a feeding system? Is there a level of sustainability or recycling, like the show we're going to see now? And you yeah. said it's a survey and you brought past projects back. If the work hasn't been placed with the museum or a collector, does it get recycled and become something else? It hasn't. I've just kept them as works ah i've been storing it like a years. bundle of that project which i find yeah. so far out because the idea you can just store all this stuff like yeah, well and, and you've been storing it all over the place haven't you like all over europe yes even. i've got well the, i've got a gallery in italy and a gallery in germany and a gallery in new york and they all store stuff but we couldn't bring anything from new york because transport now is insane yeah it's so expensive, um, yeah. yeah whereas land transport isn't so bad so um the remnants of the venice biennale came up from uh turin and the remnants of uh, uh, the asset strippers um, came from, and also from the studio operators, came from Berlin. And then the rest of it came from my storage in the East End. I've got a lot of, I've got a big shed up in Scotland. And so that was full. I hadn't been in it for, for a decade. Would you class yourself as a hoarder? No, I wouldn't actually. I was discussing this with Rachel the other day. Rachel's my partner, Rachel oh, okay. Lowe, sort of, because uh, actually the stuff, I mean, I do like stuff. If anything, in the house has got too many clothes in. I buy a lot of old clothes. I love old clothes. It's been like, you know, uh, I remember Jarvis Cocker saying years ago, the only difference in his life now is that he, he pays kind of like uh, 200 quid for something he used to pay 50p for in a jumble <laughs> sale. I can relate to that. Yeah, That's yeah. kind of like uh, the truth of my sad life now, sort of like. Uh, but, um, but in terms of all the material is related to exhibitions. So, you know, 
you wouldn't call Cara a hoarder because he's got a load of steel and a load of artworks hanging around, would you? Mm. Sort of like, so it just happens to be the work. So, you know, obviously I do like matter and material to, to make from, a bit like the big old resin tub that my dad brought back. But that's know? what I mean, that, like the asset strippers feel like it relates to your dad coming home with yes. this object that course, was yeah, yeah. Like yeah. from a factory. Yes, and then I'd be making this stuff out of it, sort of a, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, um, I mean, maybe that's a, Again, one of the things I've been su successful with is that I've managed to turn things of no interest or of, uh, of no value into... But discarded, overlooked, mm. suddenly yeah. become precious. But yeah. I've also felt subconsciously in your work that you have a real care and almost like a kind of love or something towards these 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 parts you know that they yes. become the thing and to the histories and to those communities and even like i know in asset strippers i think some of the tools say have like you know so many people's hands that would have been holding them and using them that you can almost like see the kind of marks from yes. where their hands have kind of you know of course yeah. yeah and that kind of imprint or like fingerprint or that kind of like history and it really touched me because i was like that's really interesting because there must be some duty of like I don't know, like care or love yeah. within it, I think. Well, certainly, I mean, I mean, to go back to my dad, I mean, it was the one thing he'd get angry with me for was if I left his tools in the garden to go rusty, which occasionally we did when we were using them when we were children. Yeah. Right, so, right. You know, his tools were very, you know, it was it was very a kind of hallowed sort of area. And in fact, I, you know, dedicated that show to to my dad. Oh. So, but I mean, yeah, it's um, the thing about the that anthropomorphic, that sort of like aspect of the sculptures, because they were quite anthropomorphic as well, the sculptures and the asset strippers. I mean, if we were to think of like a winged bull down in the, mm. um, in the British Museum and then some of these constructions certainly had that sort of mass and sort of like, you know, you could almost, they almost look kind of animal-like or yeah, human yeah, yeah. sort of like uh, at times. But I think that sort of presence of that, but also the presence of the people that work them as well, is quite a kind of heady mix in many ways. I mean... That was the thing I was most worried about with the asset strippers was being, you know, patronising. You know, cause to wheel in a load of people's old tools and then stick them up on plinths mm. and in the Tate Gallery could mm. sound like a terrible idea, you know, on many levels, you know, for the people that worked on them. And going back to actually walking around and looking at it when people were in, it was much easier than, you know, being caught up inside one of the, you know, constructions. Um, but I remember talking to a, a, a guy who'd come down from Glasgow and uh, he actually worked on one of those um, welders uh, the very same one, and uh, he was, you know, he was almost yeah, tearful. Really? He was quite moved wow. by it. He didn't know who I was. He used to build Hillman Imps up in Glasgow back in the... He used uh, to build what? Hillman Imps. What's that? It's a car. So, a bit like a mini, but a bit cooler. They used to use okay. it for rally driving and stuff. They were nice looking cars. But he used to build those up in um, in Glasgow on these very and same meant, welders. Meant, yeah, that was yeah. his projection onto it then. Yeah. You made that work for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no, but was, I also uh, feel like you, the way you construct them, you have there is a kind of seriousness to it. So it's not frivolous or like, you know, no. insulting or anything. It's like, I actually think you're almost making people wake up a bit and to look at what's changing and to look at where we're headed as a society. Yeah. Because when I leave your installations, I start wanting to like touch exactly. the sky. I'm kind of like, things. is that real? <laughs> like, why is this the consensus? And consensus is such a word I keep thinking about because society is basically a group of people that's agreed on something and then you all agree on those values. But actually, when I leave your installations, I sort of feel like I've been shaken up a bit. And when it comes to waking people up, um, obviously, the title of the show is Extinction Beckons. I've always felt like your work's very open and it's not didactic and it's not telling you to believe anything. It's almost like you have to find it for yourself, which is true of all yes. um, politics in a way. But is there is there something that excites you about sort of sending people on this journey? 
Well, the title Extinction Beckons is um, an old title. Again, it's a repurposed, like I've repurposed everything in the show. Uh, that was actually the title of the first catalogue I did in 2000 with the Coral Reef at Matt's Gallery. Mm. And in fact, I have to sort of like thank uh, my friend Jackie Irvine because it was when I was sitting with her and she said, why didn't you call the book? Because she'd written all the text in that book years ago. Why didn't you call it that? And she pointed at this helmet, an old motorbike helmet from the 70s and covered in old stickers, <laughs> and one of which says Extinction Beckons. And uh, I thought, well, that is a good title. Sort of like, because there's something about... There's such a humour to it, sort of yeah. like, you know, it's really dark, it sounds profound, it, it, but actually sort of like a, it's kind of just some biker joke, sort of like, the, there's no way this thing on my head's going to save me when I hit, hit a bridge at 70. Yeah, right. You know, it's, uh, but also the word, even in the language of it though, the word sort of beckons is such a sort of strange. It's totally. Because sort of, it does sort of suggest that sort of like somehow, you know, you want to go to it. And I think or there it's is, inevitable. Yeah, there is yeah. something about us that somehow, um, you know, of course we'll be extinct at some point anyway. Yeah. To me, <laughs> I've, I've got Brian Blessed's voice in my head yeah. going like, extinction, Beckham's God. Or like Ian yeah, McKellen yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some kind of like, I don't know, yeah. like that era. Do you, do you personally source everything and do you work solo or do you have a team? No, I've, I source everything myself. Um, wow. I would say asset strippers, I did it with Paul. Uh, Paul Carter, a good friend and sculptor who helped me build the coral reef originally. I've known him since then. And uh, his, he doesn't do so much of the heavy work now, so he was helping me do the... We, we'd sit at, on the computer looking at the... Because uh, I hated doing that. Trying to find things on a computer is not for me. But eBay's your friend, though. No, no, I don't do eBay either. I mean, normally I'm just picking stuff out of markets. For years I was just going to the car boots and markets all around the world, you know, world really. Um, you know, we'd be going around the, in the architectural salvage yards, been to some of the weirdest places, you know buying them off a, you know, a muller in Istanbul who was redecorating his mosque and, you know. They must be thrilled when you turn up because yeah, it's exactly. the stuff that seems to be no one else no, was once. looking at. Well, it, well it, that is true of 20 years ago. Right. But I'd say now, you'd be amazed what people want. Sort of mm -hmm. like, a, it's actually quite irritating. Sort of like, but I suppose I've, Possibly part of that set problem by. I love the slowness of it. I love the fact oh, that it's so... not. It's not like a quick thing to make a, a mic show. It's no, like you have to. You have to have years of dedication. Well, part of the pleasure passion. was, you know, you go to Sao Paulo and you're trying to find some sort of decent timber to build. Um, where we built this sort of extended the curve wall of the Oscar Oscar uh, Niemeyer sort of, uh, yeah. uh, pavilion in sort of in, in Sao Paulo, where, um, and we couldn't screw into the floor of the ceiling so I had to build off a platform and then you had to sort of like I had to find some timber and hardwood because it's all hardwood out there it's hideous to build with sort of like so I'm trying to find some softwood and I found this 19th century Baltic pine three by two 10 11 meters long sort of like each piece absolutely so straight and what they used to do is they used to when they were taking the hardwood obviously they had to go bring something back and forth to fill the ship up with. So I used to bring some construction timber. So I was lucky to find it, but looking all around the salvage yard that's outside of Sao Paulo, and in, in this sort of like twin city called Gorillas, uh, we found it in the end and it was the most bizarre space, you know. I remember sort of like rummaging around. It was kind of just getting to dusk and, and sort of hearing something sort of like in the, the corner of this building and looking down and this... A dog the size of a small donkey sort of was looking through the window at me, sort of like uh, this barred window. It's like, oh, God. But uh, it's, yeah, so it's incredibly vernacular then, the way you work. Like you were saying you were doing the project there and you looked in Sao Paulo for the materials. Oh, yeah, no. I've got, I mean, I've been rummaging around Sao, you know, 
Sydney, Melbourne, sort of San Francisco. I did a big project out there in Oakland. I used to buy off this lovely Mexican guy with the most bright blue eyes, sort of like down in sort of like uh, down in San Leandro, down at the bottom of Oakland, sort of. Uh, and I think he used to think, what on earth is this man doing? Sort of like uh, I was buying all this hardwood timber, so I was reconstructing the interior of, a, of an old 1953 bus. And then I was panelling it with all the panels that came out of a housing project, you know, with the bits of graffiti and yeah. you know, whatever that had been wow. written on. Sort of, uh, but uh, so, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, that's a bit I really enjoy, I must admit. Sort of, uh, well, one of the bits I really enjoy. Obviously, making it's enjoyable, but actually finding the, the material as well sort of uh, is good. I, I heard you mention Istanbul, and I was mentioning to Russell earlier because he's obviously a huge dog fan. He has three dogs. And I know that when you showed in, I think it was in Turkey, you... No, it was in Bucharest. Oh, it was Bucharest. Okay. The educational exhibition for dogs. Yes, yeah. exactly, for stray dogs. Yeah, that? For stray dogs? Yes, it's yeah, amazing no, it's, work it's, you made. It was, um, in fact, there was a very... Important work to me in many ways, even though I don't think anybody saw it. Not even many of the dogs, even sort of. Uh, <laughs> but it was in uh, 1996. I'd got a residency, which was part of the Pepiniers European Union thing, which unfortunately won't be open to anybody anymore. But for artists under 30, like a residency. Yeah, and I wanted to get as far south and east as I could because I love going south and east. You know, towards you know the Middle East, really. And Bucharest was as far south and east as I could get. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I'd written a proposal kind of based on the idea of Soviet science fiction and the idea of bypassing the censors and sort of, uh, uh, but trying to do it, you know, that's Soviet science fiction between a post-Soviet situation in like a post-Soviet state like Romania and to see if it would still work because we, you're not really quite sure who's in power, you know, after after communism, who was in power. As it turned out, in Romania, it was pretty much the communists, but rebranded, sort of like... Right. A, um, so anyway, we turned up and Rachel came with me and we went to... And we you know, got a £1,000 a month. This was an absolute small fortune in those days, to me anyway. But in Romania, it was like a, a king's ransom. So we could live off this quite well and also save money to live off for another few months afterwards. And uh, when we got there, we went to get a flat and a studio and a show, you know, and obviously and a connection to the art scene there. And the woman that was looking after us, she just never seemed to sort of like, she was always either got a toothache or her mother was dying and sort of like, and she took us to this sort of like 
room in between two uh, typing pools in the comedy theatre. The most bizarre sort of space, sort of like uh, where they're doing all these Ben Johnson plays, but all in Romanian. Two typing pools. Two yeah, ones. so this was in the offices at the back of this comedy theatre. So at 8 o'clock every morning, the typing was done, you know, proper old school typing. And we'd be sleeping in this room in between and sharing a bathroom and with what? Well, a bathroom, it was a toilet with a sink. That was all we had. And with no communication to anybody. So we weren't really quite sure what we were doing there, but I was getting paid, so I was, I was staying. <laughs> what so year was like this again? Sorry. 96. So it was only a few years after Ceausescu. So it was pretty raw. You couldn't find food half the time. I mean, oh the, the spring came in and then the food came in. But actually, when we first got there and it was, uh, you, know, you know, March or something, it was quite kind of uh, quite difficult to find stuff. And there was very few restaurants. There was a few um, that she used to go to. But anyway, nobody showed us where anything was because this woman, Roxana, never got in contact with us. So there we are sort of sitting in this sort of like room which had like a single sofa bed, which we bought another mattress from the market. And then we had a sort of great big, uh, you know, one of those sort of radiogram things. Um, it had one of those huge radiograms in it. Mm. It just used to play one channel called uh, Radio Romantique. And it just used to play sort of the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd. And just constantly sort of... Uh, and then we looked... It's we, so dystopian. Oh, it's oh, incredible. Yeah. We bought a little sort of two double hob and the, the window overlooked the courtyard of the theatre... To a, to a uh, where all you know sick people go, an infirmary type thing, kind of thing, yeah. But there was just all these old men in striped pajamas, sort of smoking fags out of these barred windows, like prison. A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but exactly, it was a kind of a strange <laughs> mixture between sort of like prison and hospital. Right. Uh, there's a particular name they gave it, but sort of a, uh, and they used to look at us, and we'd look at them as we were cooking along. And we spent this time there, and we. Uh, the only people we seen weren't people. They were dogs. The streets were full of dogs. Imagine Oxford Street. Every sort of hundred foot, there'd be a pack of twenty dogs just hanging out, sort of like a, you know, they're just there. I mean, the, the contemporary art museum, well, contemporary wasn't really contemporary, but the art museum, you know, had its kind of uh, two sets of doors, and in between there was a dog with puppies, you know, with mm. its litter of puppies, and they were just running in and out. So uh, people didn't seem to mind. They were very nice. They... they were nice to the dogs. They treated them with respect, or well, was it? They seemed to, yes. Right. It wasn't like, uh, yeah, well, I've seen in some countries where yeah. they, they just cull them. And in the end, in fact, now I think they've done a sort of like a mass sort of like... Um, um, Kennel type thing. Or like no, when you sort of like get rid of their kind of ability to have puppies. Oh, like they, they, oh, they knew to them. And yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Sort of, uh, to so control spade, the population. Spade them all and, exactly, yeah, yeah. spade them all. Sort of like, so, which was a humane thing to do. Yeah, sort yeah. of like, and then, but they didn't do a mass kind of, uh, you know, which I've seen in other countries. Yeah. But um, so it's actually sort of like, uh, they seem to have done a relatively good job of it. But they were there everywhere anyway. And we became friends with some of them. The sort of like uh, the sad-eyed dog, the fat dog, the crocodile dog. Oh. The sort of like, there was, a, there was a bunch of them we used to know, you know, sort of like, uh, so... Then we just travelled. We'd just get on trains and take a sleeper train across the country and with a tent and a, and, a, and, a couple, and a couple of sleeping bags and sort of like sleep here, there and everywhere. And it was kind of very interesting What did time. you do for the dogs, though? What was the Well, in the end, sort of like the, the, the woman, Roxana, was meant to be coordinating us. She sort of like got hold of us and gave us the space, the Academy of Art sort of like exhibition space, which is strange old space anyway and so i just dragged all the stuff in off the streets and made this ex ex exhibition educational exhibition for dogs which was when you walked in it just looked like a space stream of rubbish but within the rubbish there was 40 different sort of tableau and objects about why we're human and they're dogs 
Ah, so it'd be like a sort of tattling towel made out of the kindling with a small dog made out of a, a an old box and a football. But it kind of it's almost falling to the point where it doesn't look like it's anything. Sort of a there'd be like a, a distillery talking about alchemy with bits of old rotting fruit on the floor, and then there'd be a broken sink with a plastic fish and a plastic crayfish, and the other half like a you know the evolutionary sp- split when the fish grew legs and crawled out of the the sea sort of a there'd be a whole um alphabet of sort of like made out of different material sort of a a compass made out of a big metal tin box you know and uh the dogs weren't invited in well they were invited sort of like in fact the invitation card was with, with me drawing a square and a triangle and a circle in the earth with a with a dog looking really interested sort of looking down <laughs> at the end of the stick of course there was a bit of a sausage on the end of the stick yeah, that's why it was so interesting uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, but he did look really learned it was called Vasilis. it was a nice dog sort of like uh but he he but apparently he wasn't allowed to go as far as where the academy was because the other dogs controlled it and those dogs didn't come in unfortunately but i suppose the absurdity of the thing is is that the material strewn on the floor and his floor is as, as interesting or as educational to a dog as what I'd made out of it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Sort of, uh, and I suppose that's often the sort of thing with my sculpture, and I suppose it refers back to, say, the Strugatsky brothers and a book like Roadside Picnic, where you know, the idea of sort of matter, uh, the, 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 within that book there's a visitation by aliens, the stalkers go in to try and get the stuff back, and the university educators look at it to try and work out what the messages they're trying to give us about why they came. And then there's one moment they say, well, it's just like a roadside picnic. They came, they kind of had their sandwiches, they chucked the crust over the shoulder, they changed the spark plug, and it's as, it means as much or as little as that. And that's the thing between material and sculpture, I suppose, and that ambiguity and that kind of being on the cusp. And I suppose that's why it was important for me, that show. But also that's where I met uh, Leah and Dan Pajowski, these two artists, who one day I was working in there, they said, oh, you're making an installation, and they said it in English. Nobody seemed to be speaking to me in English, and nobody's talking about installation. So suddenly it was like, ah, sort of like, uh, who are these? And then when I was doing the thing with the dogs, I met them again, and they took me up to their studio, and then they showed us everything in in Bucharest. There was, um, you know, a place where all the artists went to bar. You wouldn't know where it was. It was top floor, a tower block somewhere. There was a Soros Foundation. You could access all the information on the artists in the area. And... I think what was interesting that it became clear to me that the, our contact um, had purposely sort of like kept us isolated. And that idea of like a closed system, which was kind of the, the system of control that the Soviet Union used. So having gone to um, Romania to make a, a work about sort of like trying to, to make you know, sort of this narrative about sort of you know, the post-Soviet sort of structure, I had somehow become the subject of the narrative as opposed yeah, to the narrator yeah. of it. Wow. And so it was an interesting trip, you know, in terms of the work, you know, that I made, but also... It just feels like your work, the whole experience. <laughs> the whole it was, like yeah, your so work. It was fantastic. And we had, I mean, it was kind of bizarre, but fantastic, sort of a... Uh, so. And what? if it had been Istanbul, it would have been cats. I just realised. Yes, actually, Istanbul is like yeah. streets full of cats yes. like that, yes. where you walk, you open a door, and then I actually stayed in a hotel once there, where you in the hotel room there was a cat who gave birth to kittens, and we had to in like your ho- your own had to, bedroom. Yeah, and we had to sleep with them. And it was when I was with Dan Theo, and he was obsessed with cats. I'd have actually loved that. Yeah, it was very cute. Actually, the funniest the the, the 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 Istanbul story like that though was when I went uh, to to collect the material for Iron Posture in the British Pavilion. My friend Mary sort of said like, "Do you know any hotels?" 
in um in because she was kind of organizing it sort of like uh in in istanbul so i don't know the yeni hotel which i used to stay in in 1987 and again in 1992 and again in like it's kind of the one i used to stay in when i was a kind of teenager and she said okay and i was like oh i didn't know she booked me in it's kind of march so it's pretty cool and it's a real backpackers sort of like uh you know, behind the sort of station place. And so we turned up and I was a bit like, oh, God, do I really want to stay here for like a... So we went in sort of like, and it's exactly the same, the portrait of Ataturk, the sort of like the, the fake rock sort of like a counter at the front, sort of a... But then there's this young guy, not the old guy I used to know, sort of like uh, sitting behind it. So I said, oh, wait, can I take a look at the room? I thought, well, have a look before I go in, sort of like commit myself to 10 days in here, sort mm. of a... And I followed him and said, wait, and I said, and I said, oh, I... I've stayed here before. He said, oh, when was that? I said, oh, well, 1987. 80, 80, so it was the first time. He said, oh, yeah, when was that? I said, well, in, in August. He said, ah, sort of like uh, uh, I was born then. And I said, really? So I said, oh, what date? He said, oh, 20th of August. I said, well, I know for certain that I was here that day when you were born. He was the son of the owner. Weird. Because that was my birthday <laughs> as well. Uh, Twenty. And I, t- I turned 20. On that day, sort of like, uh, how weird! I, know. I thought, my God, I felt like almost like it was my son. <laughs> wow! Well, we're going to go see the exhibition now, yeah. uh, which you've described as a glitch in reality. My intent has always been to make immersive works that should have a narrative, a spatial aspect, but also a psychological effect on the senses. You're seeing and feeling one thing whilst your brain is trying to override this and tell you something else. So now we're going to go in. It's actually been so exciting because this is like um, night at the museum almost. Yeah, you right, heard right. people hoovering earlier. And oh, this is this the way. entrance. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, that is not, oh, okay, yeah. so it's not yeah. the traditional entrance. No, no, we're sort of, uh, I think actually in, in real terms, we're entering through the gift shop. We are, yes. yes. It used to be the gift shop, didn't it? Well, your, your, your manifesto then you just sort of read, if you can call it a manifesto, is, is basically like something doesn't, this doesn't exist before, but... It doesn't make sense, but then when you're here, you know it doesn't exist, but it still doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense how it got here. It feels like it's always been here. Yeah, it's kind of a schism in the mind, I think, somehow, when you kind of you you know that something has been constructed for you, but at the same time, your eye is telling you something else. Yeah. Um, and I think it's all, it's worked off that for many years. So, anyway, this is the notice board, which uh, again I've always had a slight problem with uh, labels in museums and mm. I, this was something i wanted to deal with so i made these for the exhibition which are old notice boards and then just cut to fit these old perspex frames that i bought from my friend andy in the junk shop a couple of doors down from me who is a, an old friend of mine from the, oh, from a long long time ago we used to f- fight over things in the car boots in the 90s did you yeah. <laughs> then we became friends it's often the way you start fighting and then you, that's how we started i think yeah the best way sort of like so we're looking at I Imposter 2011 various materials so this is a reconfiguration of a work from 2011 this is the the matter the material from I Imposter from the British Pavilion so right in front of us is stacked up and behind see it doesn't make sense because it feels like we've come into the wrong point of a museum it feels like a storage storage room okay this is like lit in red as well so it's like this kind of we're kind of bathed in red light right now it really really reminds me of my childhood when my mum worked at the natural history museum and we we used i used to spend all my time behind the scenes at the history museum and it was just like this with like dinosaurs though yeah (laughs) i suppose it tricks you oh it's amazing and the smell as well well this i suppose is once they're taken down this is the kind of remnants of the, the huge construction the british pavilion Again, when I mentioned before, trading station, the first show at Matt's Gallery, so which was a, a room of 
storage. So it, it refers back to that, but it also refers back to the first Turner Prize work, Cosmic Le Legend of the Erebus Serpent, where I built a, a warehouse to store the coral reef within, uh, on which I'd been nominated for, so for the Turner Prize. So in a way, there's this sort of a kind of reference back, but it also seems quite a good place to start, at, mm. almost at the end, in a way. We're looking at like a thousand things in here, potentially, yes. objects. Could you, would you be able to know where every single object in here was from, where you sourced it and found it? Yeah, yeah. Wow, you have yeah. that database in your head. So, like, there's yeah. there's a satellite dish over there. Yeah, they're from Istanbul. There's, Whereas that's actually Italian. It's an old chimney, sort of yeah, like we, a we, burner. We, it was a fantastic moment in uh, in in Venice, where because it's mad, yeah. because the Venetian Brilliant. material isn't that different. That's in a way the, where the idea came from. I was walking around um, Venice and thinking, like, this reminds me of of Istanbul. Of Istanbul, because yeah. of course it's got that Byzantine history behind it, and so. The stuff I brought, say, some of the doors are Italian and some are, are Turkish. Like, this is a Turkish one. This in, is your, a in your touching these, how do you feel about touch in your environments? Because it feels like, because they're, they're installations, they're immersive, as a member of the public, you feel like you want to hold onto the walls at some point or you're going to open a door. Yeah, what is well, you your... have to open a door if you're moving through them. So certain things, it's fine to touch and to sort of push. Uh, but certain things, obviously, the more fragile, smaller objects, mm. they're going to break if everybody picks them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and takes them so do you have a and when when you're navigating your way through these labyrinths you create do you have in your mind's eye the journey you want people to take or you you all like obviously make it disorientating so people have to navigate their own way through um well, different ones are different things i suppose i mean the coral reef was that was very much a, an idea of trying to equate a literary structure to a spatial structure and that literary structure was a like a borgesian one but most particularly to a book by Stanislav Lem that was very much in that ilk, which was called A Perfect Vacuum, where it was a, a series of reviews of non-existent books, where the first chapter is a review of itself, but argues it's just part of the anthology of short stories. Each, trying to get my head around that. Yeah, each it's room, a review of itself before it's even... Yeah, so the first room in the Coral Reef, if you remember... So the, and the Coral Reef, by the way, we haven't really spoke about that. Is an inst and, and then it was installed at Tate, Tate, Britain. Tate yeah. it. But the first room is a reception to the art gallery but it's a fake reception to the art gallery if that makes any sense and the art within it the idea of the art gallery is part of the belief structures that then carry on whether it be islam or or fundamental christianity or whether it was sort of a marxism or sort of a um a, a biker gang or black magic you know all the different sort of kind of categories so in a way the coral reef was a a complex and um structure of fragile belief systems mm -hmm. uh, that but organized yeah. religion is quite that, a big thing yeah but so, which art could be one of <laughs> exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah of course it is well art sort of uh, i suppose it represents modernity yes. in many ways modernity i think it was a religion that's the thing we've just lost actually yeah. and i think it's the one thing that metered capitalism uh in recent uh, decades and now that's why it's such free form now ultimately so yeah and then um yeah the, the ocean surface above the coral reef is that of, of money of capital ultimately mm. so so that's always kind of underpinned a lot of the work and uh yeah what is your news channel where do you get all your political references from where do you pick up your news do you my, have like rachel BBC? my other half oh really yeah, she's a complete news so it's all received wisdom oh completely <laughs> <laughs> that kind of makes sense where does rachel where does like rachel filtered. get it from yeah oh she's the garden she's like sort of um I can't remember now, but she, she's looking at all sorts of places, but kind of pretty straightforward, not anything too outlandish. Yeah, sort of, yeah. uh, this is a huge sort of bobbin to go back to textiles from, from uh, that would have had uh, spools of, oh. of, of cloth on, sort of like... So that's uh, like a nine-foot 
giant bobbin that would have had it like, would have had textiles on I think around, like, yeah. yeah that's from the actually from the caravanassai in Istanbul because what this original show its its beginnings came from was a a space in 2003 uh for the Istanbul Biennale where I they asked me to do a project they had about 10 grand which isn't a great deal of money for a big project so I, I went round the Istanbul of my youth and found this old caravanassai this 17th century crumbling which had been turned to an industrial estate and found an, a room that we could rent, two rooms, and then I turned it into a photographic darkroom and then documented every uh, room within the building. There's about 80 different rooms, all these different, like, casting aluminium, there was sort of, uh, weaving, they had these weaving machines. They were still using these, um, I think they might be early 1900 weaving machines from Switzerland. They were still working in this building, sort of like, which is, this was, you know, not part of, it's not of that age, but it was all part of the same weaving sort of her history. They were pressing trousers, they were making trousers, they were making buttons, they were doing all sorts of things in this building. It was incredible. It's like Hackney Wick, but sort of like in a 17th century caravan asteroid. And so in a way, the red light refers to that as well. And, and right. later on... Oh, to developing. Yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so when I came image. to make the Venice Biennale, I took the negatives of the photographs of the building, which is all I had left, and then I built the building back around the negatives, so it's almost like a reverse. Oh my God, it's like Inception or The Matrix, yeah. the way that your brain works when it comes to creating art. Like, so we're, we're currently by these kind of um, shelving units, which are like industrial kind of ones. You can probably actually climb up on them. You shouldn't climb up on them, I will add, for health and safety. No. But, but you technically could if, you, if it was your storage facility. But at the top, you've got almost what look like sort of like ladders or something. Stairs, they're they're yeah. quite ominous. Yeah, yeah, like stairs, yeah. Oh, well, they're built from the building from in, in Venice. So but also built... the weight of them, yeah, it's yeah. so intense. Tense like that, what, what looking is, up to them and that heavy weight. Safety thing for your work. <laughs> How does what I mean? What are the conversations sure that galleries are having more. with you? I well, I think it was quite good in you know doing the asset strippers in in the Tate, and I think their thing there was if it balanced for a day, if it stayed it for twenty four hours, it was safe. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a great sort of like uh, you know. The smell, I can't get over the smell, that kind of dusty mm. smell. It reminds me of those kind of behind the scenes in old museums, you know. It does feel like we're trespassing. It does feel like, even though we're with you, the artist, Mike, it feels like we shouldn't really be in here. Totally. That's well, what's so exciting about yeah. it. Yeah, it, it does, gates. Well, I think it does invite you to transgress, which I think in a way is it's, its success is some, somehow its failure at times in terms of, you know, if when people do do things to it or take things, I mean, it's it's kind of possibly part of that. I was I going mean, to say, it's probably part of it because the thing is, it's actually alive, isn't it? It is, yeah. We're just doing some pictures for the socials. It is a nice red room, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, oh, and all the text on the boxes, it's like, yeah, it's so... Rooms. It's um, just tri it's tricky. It's like a, it is a glitch. You know, this is probably jumping ahead to the art heist. But for you, what is what is someone else's like trash that becomes your treasure? What is the ultimate thing? I think always is, it's always an object that sort of has a history of uh, somebody that's occupied it, occupied it with with meaning and with uh, that they've treasured treasured somehow. And you see that you see that that's why that's why tools are so interesting because people you know they both treasure them because they like them but they also they need them and they can yeah. have, uh, provide something for them sort of uh you see it in clothing as well i mean i mean that's one of the other things if i were to hoard anything it's probably clothing you know? so, yeah. like tools. you know when buttons are sewn on or like when exactly, people have patched yeah. things up yes especially with knitwear because i'm obsessed with knitwear yeah. but when people actually have a hole from a moth and then people sew it up and then it. and then I you like inherit that one. i yeah. love all of that no, no, that I kind see. of layer of history if yeah. I had my curator's head on right now, which I've gone into, 
I would love a three-person show with you, Mohammed Sami, who's currently in a, a solo show at the Camden Arts Centre, yeah. and Lawrence Abu Hamdan. For some reason, do you know Lawrence Abu Hamdan, the sound artist? He was no. a Turner nominee a few years back, and they won. He's really but... interested in like, yeah. um, audio architecture. He shows a Maureen Paley. Ear witnessing. Oh, yeah. Ear witnessing. Yeah. 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 yeah, he was in the Turner and you do, yes. they do, People describe yes. it through the sounds of well, their environment. Yeah, yeah. And then Mohammed Sami uh, looks at kind of... Uh, political uh, upheaval in in Iraq, for example, and passage. Yes. Do you know his work? Yeah, no. Well, vaguely, I think sort of like uh, I'm terrible at. Uh, of late, I've become somewhat uh, immersed in my own world. Well, yes, yeah. a lot going uh, on. Not surprised. <laughs> yes. This yeah, must have been the biggest. But what do you think? Do you not think that'd be an amazing three-person show? It would be. Yeah, show. yeah it'd be incredible. Yes. What What has this show actually been like to have to set up? Because I imagine this must have been incredibly emotional, stressful, uh, even just an organisational level on a really kind of boring practical level? Um, yeah, it's been, I'm, I'm probably sorry to say, the least enjoyable show mm. to build because mm. actually most of the pleasure for me comes in being immersed in making something mm. and I've been so distracted on this because I've been five huge works. I'm constantly jumping between uh, and then we had like, with a very short period of time in here, which is the most exciting bit, which is when you're actually installing. Because mm. yeah. we were in a, I mean, we were in, a, we were in an Argus warehouse down in Orpington in Kent for four months with me and a, about four or five of us on and off. And um, and that was more perfunctory because we were just cutting timber, measuring things out. You know, it wasn't like you didn't see something growing. Mm. You know, so that was more just everyday work. And then we only had four weeks when we got in here. When I was in here, I was literally being pulled left. I was literally doing laps around the place. You know, and I couldn't, Every now and again, I get to build something by myself, but mm. very rarely. I was really just sort of talking, checking in, sort of answering questions, sort of like uh, through all the people working on it, which isn't the way I like to work, really, to be mm. quite honest. But it was an, you know, an, a necessary evil on this one. And I, I, in the end, I was astounded we actually got it done. It's and it says, queue here, so people have to queue, and then they get to go inside. Yeah. Oh, good, because I'm, yeah. like, <laughs> gagging to get in there. You've got to join the queue. Um, is it? Yeah, we've got to join the queue, actually, Russell. You've got <laughs> yeah. the queue behind me now. So can I open this door um, and yeah. we go in? All right, we're going into a... You don't have to ask for permission, Russell. We're going into a square wait. structure... Scary, and the door, the door shuts behind you. There's like a hinge on that that it's like, doesn't stay yeah, all open. All the doors shut behind you. It's got a spring, proper spring. In many ways, when you sort of like... um. When you stood on the um, the mezzanine years ago yeah. and looked down over the sort of structure and you could hear the slamming of doors, it was almost like a sort of uh, an unseen sort of performance of the yeah. people inside. You know, it's a, a slight kind of a like some sort of weird '60s sort of play where you can you can only hear it from the outside. It's quite hitchy. Again, it's that, in some ways. It is. It's very Robert Morris as well. The yeah. box and the sound of its own making. All it's sort of, yeah. It's got that aspect to it. And why? Why? Have you ever been asked to engage with actors or performance within your... Yeah, I was asked years ago, you know, by you know, Punch Drunk, asked, yeah, yeah, yeah. asked me, like, uh, they were really nice, you know, sort of, um, I think Felix and Colin, uh, they were doing something down at the old, uh, the tunnels under the old, yeah, the yeah. old Vicks. The Shunts like, Vaults or... Yeah, yeah, this is like going back 10, 15 years, so yeah. sort of like, uh, and um, I met up, had a nice time, sort of like uh, chatting away, but in the end... It's not really what I do. I don't really want that. I don't. I want the visitor. I, it's sculpture. It's matter. It's object. But also, the the people I want to pour into it are those that just visit it, visit it as, as sculpture. So it didn't really seem to make sense. But it, you know, because they obviously were very interested in artists yes. like me and those that before me that have made works like this over the years. You know. So I love this kind of string. This kind of like nylon yes. rope or something. That's like no, what are we? There's a what fan is this in room? here, and it's, it's blowing against that. 
this this is just the reception, sort of like a. The reception of whatever it is, whatever it is, you, you, the public projects into this exactly, this yeah. Space. Wow. But there's well, clues though, because there's numbers where there would have been keys hanging, perhaps, which suggests it's like different. different it's a fair size rooms, and there's a hell of a lot of. Did you make that keyhole? No, you found, found that. that. No way. That's so was cool. you looking for that, or that came along and you went ah? It's the sort of thing I always would have bought and kept, you know, for in a, the right space. Talking of open, yes, we're presented with yes, two doors. Yes, whichever, yeah. whichever, whichever you fancy. I'm starting Does to that get door panicky. go somewhere? Well, they all go, they somewhere. All go somewhere, Russ. <laughs> pick which door. Which door? I, I can't pick. I'm, I'm getting. Well, I'm going to look in this door. Yeah, I wanted to look in that one. I wanted to go in that one. That's the same as me. That's so weird. Oh. Oh, come on then. Let's go that way. Now it's open. I want to go oh that God, way. And this is how we get lost. We're literally entering the maze. But right you now. want us to get lost. That feeling yes. of getting lost. <laughs> he is... wants us to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, freaky. So we're now walking so into what feels like a kind of makeshift squat, like somebody's broken into a, a building and made it. Army, like, sleeping bags are there, and they've creeped in here at night, and they're, they're crashed out here. They're in hiding. There's a yellow chair like with tape. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's funny to come back in here because, like I say, this is a companion piece to the coral reef mm. that was built just after. So a lot of the sort of interests in terms of... The structures of you know, society, belief structures, uh, but also the idea of equating a literary structure to a spatial structure is still here. I mean, we were in, in Venice, we were very much dictated by the, uh, the building we were built into. It's a very long, narrow space. Um, and with the coral reef, it was very much constructed that you did get lost in the doubling and whatever. Whereas this is slightly different in that respect. Um, and again, that sort of idea of piracy. Of sort of like of the of ships was very pertinent in re relation to this in that there was three sort of texts as well as the sort of reference back to the migration of peoples across the Mediterranean. There was a reference to uh, three texts: one "City of the Red Knight" by uh, William Burroughs, "The Many Headed Hydra," which is a more historical text, mm. and "Temple of Time Zone" by Hakim Bay, which was kind of a theoretical book. But they all had one thing in common: which is talk about pirate utopias, and the title itself was a reference to two boats or ships that were constructed to take sort of settlers on to sort of Virginia after they'd been shipwrecked on the sea venture in the, in the 18th century. And somehow this idea that kind of Bermuda was somehow painted this island of the devils and it was this horrific place, And but then their future lay in sort of Virginia. And a lot of it was forced labour being taken out there sort of uh, to work in the, in the um, plantations. Mm. It have a very short life. And when the shipwreck happened, the sort of like the structure of the... Uh, the hierarchy upon the ship sort of broke down and a kind of a more utopian community was formed on Bermuda, which was actually a very beautiful place. They found meat to eat from pigs that had escaped from a Spanish galleon years before, sort of like, and they were all actually living this nice life when these two boats were made by, anyway, one of the ones that was very much bound up with our troubled history, sort of. Uh, yes. and, um, and they took the people back onto Virginia. So that's how, why I named it that. But the idea of this community which is they're often called pirate utopias, is, is touched upon in Burroughs' uh, introduction in Cities of Red Night, where he talks about the doomed sort of like um, uh, community of um, uh, Libertatia on Madagascar back in the, in the 17th century. So this was a reference point. And then back to Temporal Thomas' Zone, which talks about this, the structure of the seaways, um, passageways of the seas, the merchant navy, and et cetera, in the same way the internet exists now. Uh, then, because he was talking about back in the sort of 80s and 90s, the beginning of the internet, the World Wide Web, 
the fact that that was that. So in a way, the, all so these lo- ideas Mike, were... It's so loaded. There's so what? many references that you... I mean, I'd, I'd, I'm obsessed with your references. However, Let's move as someone it. who's coming into these <laughs> yeah. spaces... But even on the colour level in this room, I'm really struck by it because you've got the yellow tape on the chair with this kind of grey wall. Yes. And then the sound in the other room that we heard of that of that fan. Yes. It's all, like, so sensory. Because yes. the lights, they're like bare bulbs, I essentially. I that trash can there. That even your ring bright. right now is freaking me out because yeah. it's like a skull and crossbones, the ring you're wearing. Yes. Bin, where did you find this <laughs> bin? I think this one came from Venice, actually, but I love the fact <laughs> that... The sound is really... I've, I've got headphones on. Yeah, somebody has just stuck out. an axe through that, and it's made almost like... Uh, Crucifixes, isn't it? Multiple axes. Exactly, that. yeah. yeah this, it's it's just, you. But no, in no, a corrugated just, metal bin that's all kind of charred and then there's these big cross axe wounds in it. It feels very haunting. Yes, it's a beautiful object. It's it? really beautiful, yeah. but it's violent. Yeah, and it is indeed. Sort of a, but again, these are the sort of things that have no real inherent value, but somehow they're kind of charged. Yeah, and it's like a, is that yeah. charge? Yeah. What is the budget you give yourself for finding materials? Do you go like I can only spend? X yes, amount I'm of quite money. tight actually. I don't <laughs> like to. I don't like spending too much on because it sort of kind of feels slightly wrong. Sort of out. I mean, I've probably I've become more generous as I've got older. Years ago, it was very. I mean, like, on a show like this, we did the whole thing originally on a, such a tight budget. It was really. Can I ask the budget? Years ago, but to build this in Venice, probably twenty years ago. Probably was somewhere north of fifty thousand, fifty to seventy thousand. I'd have thought. Was it hard to do it for that amount? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to think of the amount of material, the labour, the hotels. So, and in this room, there are two sleeping bags. Now, that obviously is like a kind of indication that people have been staying here. Yeah. But also, that's a a motif I've I've seen in your work. Yes, sleeping bags turn up, sort of like a. I mean, obviously, this one's a Desert Storm one. Yeah. The, The the print, which would have been still relatively new. Um, when this show was made, I remember coming across this, the first set of sort of fatigues of Desert Storm in a, in a, in a sort of second-hand junk shop in San Diego in 1991 and being completely intrigued by this, the fact that it would already become surplus within the time it was still being used, you know, in the, in the <laughs> first Gulf War. So interesting. You know, sort of, um, and so that pattern always has kind of remained with me. And, you know, it's uh, in a way, in terms of my... Life so far, of course, things are changing rapidly at the moment. Sort of like the the, the war in in in, a, in the Gulf and later on in, in, in Iraq was, has been such a huge thing. Ultimately, mm. it's very much sort of it has um, molded you know our lives, you know, and what's happened. It's, it's not been in a vacuum in the Middle East. It's 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 changed the world. It's changed the world. It's yeah. spilled out. It's affected so many people there, mm. and us here. I think sort of ultimately Mm-mm. sort of. Uh, not so um, violently as, as as there, but sort of ultimately it's, except, you know, that decision, you know, especially to go to war in, in Iraq in the second, the Iraq war, the second yes. war, was, um, you know, a decision that perhaps shouldn't have been made. Mm. Well, it definitely shouldn't have been made. And you arranged these sleeping bags as we're seeing them now. That's They've been moved about. Every time I come in, I can give them a... There we go, and you're moving it right now. Yeah, a bit of a shift. Next yeah. room. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, is this actually happening? Oh my god! Oh my god! This is quite ritualistic. That looks now. almost whoa. So we're like at a shrine now with. Sh- like- and also that purple color is so like religious or like papal yes. or like papal, or, or yeah. royal Vatican as well. Or, yeah. You've got the kind of ultramarine, haven't you, with the, with the papal purple? So it's mm. um. What are we looking at, Mike? This is the room. If we were to think of this as a community, I suppose this room will be the room of 
uh, a non-denominational altar, I suppose I called it, where you can bring any object that has kind of a significance to what you want to worship and place it upon. So, And that's how I saw it. And it's a, a collection of objects that might or might not be of significance to, to one's belief. And where did these objects all come from? The same place or were they... No, they've been picked up here, there and everywhere. I mean, the thing about the show in Venice years ago, as opposed to something like the Coral Reef, where the Coral Reef I would have been buying material as I'm building it, whereas in Venice there was nowhere to buy it, so all this stuff would have been moved to Venice mm. and then I would have sorted through it to make the work. So, um, and who, who's that video of at the back? Sai Baba, who's um, like a, a guru from the... We're very popular in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm. And that's a video cassette tape? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like VHS. Yeah. And do the switches work, the light switches? No, and otherwise you'd be a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we, if we switched it to everybody would be switching them on a lot That's what I was just times. thinking. I was like, actually quite scared of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I love all the doors as well and the actual fixings, like the locks and yeah. the handles, because well, they're all so well, from different these, places. All these doors are sort of like... Um, Collected off the streets mainly in London back in 2001. God, it's so weird that one has the number all six. All original for 2001, yeah. I wonder where that this would have like been. It's like a guest house. Yeah. Um, well, and a lot of them came from Shoreditch Town Hall years ago. One difference in this work is that I've built it slight as well as slightly in construction and in dereliction as well. So the, the, the knocked out walls you might have noticed earlier on that is newer to the original and also some of these spaces where it's not been painted. Uh, so it's almost like it's you know, been left. And also all these little bits. Of, I've knocked all these out with an axe, you know, just to give it a little bit of an edge off it. So the thing is, if you think about energy, yeah. the fact you've done that with yeah. an axe, that energy stays in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take you this, this way, because originally you might not have gone this way because you might have missed this whole section. Do you find it hard... To cell work, then, if like all these objects obviously feed into so many systems you create, yeah. if you sell it and you're not allowed access to it anymore, is that hard for you? No, I'd be quite happy to get rid of it. To be quite honest, but <laughs> it's amazing how few people are that want to buy something this big. It's <laughs> hard. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you're making work for institutions. Even they don't want it. Really? Yeah, it's too hard to deal with on the whole. It's, very, it's a very brave institution. It's incredible they bought the coral reef. But it's amazing that then you don't, as an artist, you, that doesn't stop you from making what you want to make. There's no point you going, I yeah. need to place these works somewhere. It's this compulsion to create. Yes. Well, I mean, in the end, it wasn't um, the money that motivated me to do it. Otherwise, I'd have gone and worked in the city. Mm. So, you know, the, the kind of the highs from the making of the stuff, you know? So That's it's like... But, but also, I've always felt like with your work, it gets, it, it exists, it lives on mm. in the minds of the people that saw it. Yes. And then it almost becomes people tell each other about it. Yes. Well, exactly. and that's like, that really was the point years ago. Yeah, and in a I way... Mean, it still that's... is now, but I mean, I'm getting a bit old these days. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I'm realising there's not, you know, the, I suppose that level of input physically into something is getting kind of greater in terms of my reserves. And I think that's more problematic. Of course, I've got a lot more help now as well, though, to be mm -hmm. quite honest. So it's like, uh, but still, this has nearly knocked it out of me, this show. Look, somebody's kissed the mirror, look. You didn't do that, that's no. not you. I think it's, that's uh, for you. It says though. Lucy on it. Does it? Yeah, I can see the word Lucy, love. It's, if you move your head up and down it, and PB, there's a few things yeah, in there, actually. You can't stop people doing the things. I don't mind that. You know. it's like, you know. Do you get a, a break now, then, from 
now you've installed this show and it's open. And no, I'm, try, I'm trying to sort out the, the storage of it. That's my problem now, sort of, uh, but... Oh, storage issues. Yeah, so fire exit. Oh, that's such oh, a weird fire exit that. sign. It says to fire exit, T-O. Yeah. What, what's that? Yeah. As if, like, you're going towards the fire yes. exit. It's yeah. not the fire exit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's obviously, yeah, it's... Uh, in this time. structure now, what it does as well, it's disorientating because you feel like we're back in the room. We... To be honest, I thought we were going back into the room. I thought we were back in the room like four rooms ago. Yeah. And now we're we still... are, we'll be the next one. The yeah, next right. one is. But, but, that, but it the, tricks you. The thing is, is that this is a bit of an odd one because originally this would have been built in such a way in Venice that you had to walk back through it. And often you would have walked through one side and then you would have missed it and come through the other side. And in a way, that's part of the literary sort of like spatial structure of Cities of the Red Knight, where it's got this sort of double narrative going on. One set in, set in the sort of 17th century in the, the times of piracy, and one set in the, the, the current, the modern day when it was written in the 80s. Kind of, uh, so, and in a way, I think sometimes people either miss the room with the altar in all this sweatshop mm. type room, which... Your um, doors often have um, glass in them as well, so you can see the previous uh, room. Glass. And I've just realised that I thought I was in the room we were just in because you've got this, what do you call that? The thing door that's, closer. The door closer is this kind of like painted red or maroon almost. And it, you, it was the same in the previous room. Yes, yes. And I got so confused just then. And then that's I saw stumbling. it through the window. The yeah. clock's been slashed like Freddy Krueger's. It, has, oh, it does look it. I mean, that's just as is. Sort of like a... Where'd you buy that? That would have been a Carl Buso years ago. That would have been Merton Abbey Mills, probably. And they would have loved you, because you'd have picked that up and said, I'm going to have that, and they'd exactly. have been like, what? <laughs> exactly. You want to pay for that. Oh, God, and this door's really freaking me out, because you can't see through it, and it's got the weirdest door latch. Right, we'll go back this way. Then. <laughs> oh, we are? Oh, it is we, locked. Yeah, we're going to go. Oh, no. We can go that so, way. You can go you can see where you are, if you like. So okay. Because we're back Oh, yeah, here. we're back here. Okay, ah. okay. The only reason I'm showing you this way, because oh. otherwise... I didn't see that before. There's like a... That lock Alex. Alex, I like the fact it's like a body, you know. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So that is Alex. Weird. Alex. That's like a, what do you call it, like a gym locker? Yeah, but a really yeah. fat old one. Sort of wow. Ooh. Oh, wow. All these rugs. It's all like mats everywhere. Or like a prayer room or something. Yeah. It's kind of an educational room, I always saw it as. Mm. For what education? I don't know. It's left open. I mean, like the, um, the altar room is left open. This is also left open. I like the flip-flops and the wall. Yeah. You love a flip-flop and a wall. Yeah, they're beautiful. Because uh, they have the footprint of the inside. I mean, that, you know, for me was a very... That's why I bought them, because they're so incredible. Sort of like uh, somehow the idea of the, a faked footprint in a, yeah, a flip-flop. Yeah. You see them every now and again, but it's a particularly nice old one, sort of a... Uh, uh, yeah. We can call for help. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old BT phone. God, that reminds me of the 90s. So we're not even halfway through the exhibition, are we? The whole exhibition or this one? The one. whole exhibition. Oh, this no bit way, is yeah. so pleasing to me. No the, yeah. the, just formally, like, even just the colour choices and yeah. like the shape of it. The yeah. blue on that wall with them, the line there, and then the... Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. beautiful, this bit. Yeah. Oh, God. I need to push the chair over. Oh, don't worry. This is like a roulette table with cards but like a makeshift one and there's a a poster of an east asian chinese, that, chinese. yeah with a little presumably a little red book bound up in that uh in those in those packages uh, you see the the, the, mm -mm -mm. the woman uh steering has a machine gun on her back oh my god i didn't even notice yeah. that yeah and but she's happy yes well she's looking to a brighter future and uh she is yeah with her machine chinese gun. rule yeah yeah one of the things I'm really focusing on now is this bit of tape that's covered in hair. Yeah. 
I don't know where that's actually come from. It's really freaky. Yes, that is not part of the Wait, show. Just fell out of Rob's underwear, didn't Russ. it? Russ. Yeah. What? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Would you use that like for something else? Caught on the floor. Would you, would you feel like that's just going to go in the bin? Yeah. <laughs> going to go in the bin. Right. See, I'm not a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I guess you know what? There was a handle on there originally. It's obviously. Oh, it's obviously come off. Oh my God, we're trapped. We're trapped. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trapped with you in my nightmare. I'm going there. Oh, well, we better go in here. You haven't been on the roof yet either. What? Oh you kind of like you're missing out on a. It's it's worth a sort of like a moment to stop and consider this one because if you imagine when this twin towers, well, you, yes, oh, you know when this was built in May two thousand and one, it's kind of it's kind of freaked me out. I must admit, you know, because it was built in May and then it was on until November and then in the midst of it, sort of September, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're, look, so we're looking at, a, we're all gone quiet. I mean, everyone listened to be like, what, 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 what is it? But we're looking at posters of like a, a Boeing 757 and the uh, A310 Airbus, Singapore Airlines. And you built this at that point. Yeah. God, that's so weird. And you've um, got these snow globes with Statue of Liberty and then the Twin Towers in, in fact, them. The Twin Towers is in both. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, these two snow globes. Yeah. And then the Sedgwick Global Natural Perils map. Wow. I must admit, it very much unnerved me mm. when it happens. You're a profit in some ways. Well, no, I just think it's one of those ridiculous coincidences yeah. that freaks you out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, Even the furniture in here is really, like, um, flight-related, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of really reminds me of, like, the early ideas of modernist flights or something. Yeah, like. we, it's quite interesting, this room, because actually, when we came to rebuild this, we had no plans. I had just my rough drawings and the notebooks from which we built it from years ago. And um, so we had to get all the stuff out and measure it up to make all the plans, to build the walls, to make sure it was all that. I mean, David Jones, who works with me, is superb. Sort of like he did all that calculation. And the, the guys that were working with us were astounded. It was millimetre perfect. Can you imagine building this and having this to fit in perfectly? Mm -hmm. It says originally as it was. So this was built and this all just dropped in to fit. <laughs> God, I'm so confused where we are now. <laughs> We're back in the middle. <laughs> right, you go first, Ron. Sorry, it's kind of hilarious. Tangled up. Here we go. Uh, so if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? And also what object, as I asked you whether it was the Holy Grail, if you could have any objects in the world, what would it be and why? I think um, I think I'd have a cave, a, a painted cave from, um, you know, sort of like Neolithic, you know, Old times, sort of like a From cave, like cave civilization. Exactly, the yeah. one of the first paintings. Then I'd have a cave as well, and then I could have a fire. Then you could have the flickering fire in the beginnings of cinema. So that's wow. what I have. So, wow. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, so the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Hmm. When I was a child, it was yellow, but it'd probably be blue now. Hmm. And why? Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find yourself drawn to or blue red, objects? Maybe. Or red. I don't know. I like any colour, really. I just I don't, don't really have a favourite colour. I think you like wood. You like brown. I like brown, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, my God, this is haunting. Uh, yeah, this is the one I was thinking about. So this is a, a another sleeping bag piece, but inside is weighted down kind of bricks and cement. So it's, it's a bit like when you do a building job and any old sacks, you sort of fill them up with whatever. You always make too much concrete or too much plastic, you chuck it in a sack. And the idea of disregard... 
to throw it into a sort of sleeping bag and a sort of sense of suffocation when you look into the into the face of it i find it's quite, really haunting yeah you know, it's like this you know in terms of development you know the development of property and the sort of like um I suppose the sort of sense that most of that development isn't for the people that need to be housed. No, exactly. And the forgotten people. Yeah. yeah. Is grief something that plays into the work? Of course, yeah. I mean, like, um, it's one of those major things you, we have to deal with, isn't it? Um, the amnesiacs, which we'll come to later on, was all born out of the death of a very close friend, Earl, and I used to work with Early Williamson, so mm. love a mountain, rock climbing, so... but. Uh, you know, certainly the death of my dad recently, you know, the last five years was a very strong effect, especially with the asset strippers. We carry on upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Like, so do you find making work helps you process those those kind of confusing, you know, moments in life when... Well, of course, yeah. I mean, it wasn't what I set out to do, but of course you use what you can, don't you? Yeah, when yeah. you're, um, whatever you do. But, uh, hello. Hello. Nope, we're getting told <laughs> off. That's all right. I don't they're on a tour around. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Hmm, I'm trying to think. I think the best advice was from Christine Angus. It wasn't so much advice as her opinion. And she was a stone carver at Reading. Mm. And she was my tutor, along with uh, the people I mentioned earlier. But she was the person that told me when the work was shit, and she told me when the work was good. And, and she was correct. And so honesty. Honesty, yeah. 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 Honestly, the most inspiring policy. Yes. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Right. Listen, everyone, you heard that reaction. We're going to say goodbye. Enjoy the rest of the show because we've got 15 minutes. But I implore you, we implore you to get down to the Haywood and see this. And also climb the brutalist staircase we just climbed because that was even like part of your work. It's like you've activated the building. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I've never walked up there and felt the way I just felt. It's very yeah. strange. It's perfect space for what we're looking at now. Everybody, this is just so more inspiring. Congratulations. Thank you so much for... Thank you, Mike. Thank you for coming. You've been so generous. And um, just follow the Hayward Gallery. You can buy tickets online. You can be a member, which then means you can see lots of exhibitions here. Thank you to the Hayward Gallery for giving us this opportunity as well, because Mike's one of our heroes. This is incredible. See this like this is just unbelievable. All right, guys. Lots of love. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.